Hey, hey, welcome to episode 69 of the Thodcast, Conversations About Animation. I'm your host, Philip Elke, and today I'm joined by my brother, Dawson Elke. How's it going, Dawson? Hey, 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 where's the freaking Gabagoo? Uh, is there a Minnesota connection with this episode today? Is there a Minnesota connection with this Michael episode? Michael J. Fox, he's... he's what? He's, 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 no, I don't know. He seems like a California boy to me, but... Yeah. Um, weird things. Oh, I know um, Leah uh, Thompson from Back to the Future is actually from Minnesota. <laughs> More uh, people are from this state than you'd think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You never know who you might find. No, I'm sure there's something. But um, hard to say. Kirk Wise, Gary Trousdale, I is one of them from Minnesota. Um, gosh. Uh, it's just the two of us today. Michael J. Fox is from Edmonton, Alberta, so close enough. Oh, he's a Canuck. <laughs> that makes yeah. sense, too. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm adjusting my something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I w- was maybe thinking of doing something a little tongue-in-cheek for episode 69, like uh, <laughs> having you put me on the couch for just some psychoanalysis regarding one of my favorite uh, video game franchises, which helped to instill a love of like animated storytelling in me. And um, I, I decided against that. I think we'll just go ahead with what was originally planned in continuing our discussion of sort of the Disney animation saga. Kirk Wise is from San Francisco. Um, but that being the, the uh, subject to which I edit these episodes, I, I've actually been sitting down and pulling my lap, uh, laptop up to the recliner on a TV tray and uh, playing these things back while uh, comfort binging on some old PS2 games, uh, that being the Ratchet and Clank series. <laughs> how can you how can you play a game and edit at the same time? Uh, very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> like frequent pausing every time like, you every time you have to switch to a different gadget, you um it just means that if I have to pause that frequently, it means we're doing this wrong. I don't, okay. you know, it's not my intention to have to go in and remove every little. So, um, so you're just or, listening back. And if something strikes you as then you pause and OK, well, that, yeah. that's kind of fun. I'm uh, glad you're playing Ratchet Clank again. That's <laughs> awesome. And I listen to podcasts while playing video games. Like I, I play video games so seldom nowadays, mostly just like throwback stuff from my childhood. Uh, so, you know, it, I can just kind of tune out and listen to stuff while I while I play like I you know the precursor to Ratchet and Clank was the Spyro series by Insomnia Games and you gave me the remastered version of those which I've only made it through like halfway uh, hey, the, it was a bit of a struggle. well I don't know it's those movies or those games are so basic compared to Ratchet and Clank <laughs> <laughs> yeah you all you can do is bite and breathe fire or something uh, like, like headbutt Headbutt. Yeah. Oh, that's so lame. Like run it, fast. Yeah. Nos- <laughs> nostalgia must really be the factor that drives people back into that game. Um, yeah, they're sort of cool environments. Well, very well, the pack comes with a series, though. Aren't they like three? And yeah, are, three. are the later ones better? Have you only tried like the first one? Because remember how yeah. Jack and Daxter is like, well, a very fun game, but like mm-hmm. y- how you wouldn't believe how different the sequels are. 
Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, with um, the Crash Bandicoot series, like each successive game would introduce new abilities and powers and things. Uh, and I mean, same with any kind of platforming series from the dawn of video gaming, you know, Mario, Sonic. But um, Ratchet yeah. and Clank, though, they like they made that first game and were like, we did it. We made the perfect game. We don't mm-hmm. have to do anything. We just we keep this exactly as it is. The the yeah. weapon wheel and the gadgets and the level design. It's and it's such a gorgeous game. And even like the sequels to that, I think were a little bit rushed. So they suffered a bit more in the looks department. Even than that first game, you would think like the graphics would do nothing but really enhance throughout the series. Modern That's updated the- graphics for the Ratchet and Clank series did did nothing for it. In my opinion. Well, I'm just talking about the original PS2 trilogy, uh, Ratchet 1, Ratchet 2, Ratchet 3. Um, And like the first one really nailed both like the local surroundings, like the near, you know, just like the immediate surroundings to your character uh, and the um, assets with which your character interacts. And then also the the world boxes. Um, And then in like going commando and up your arsenal the colors just got a little muted in some cases the the renders for the worlds weren't always as vibrant i mean in some cases they were in some cases they were an improvement but um in others they they did seem maybe a little uh, i don't know just less polished because those movies only had like a one year turnaround on them games wasn't don't i mean is up your arsenal not your favorite of the series is the first one your favorite it's hard to say the first one i ever played all the way through was going commando uh, which is the second game because i had already first one i started yeah um like i got my first ps2 in in 2004 and like i had already seen the original ratchet game played most of the way through and so I just kind of, <laughs> I don't know, I was like, yeah, I'll start with one that I've never played at all before and uh, got going commando. It was it was a weird approach. So I can't even remember if the second game I played was the first one or if it was the third one up your arsenal. Uh, I might have played the first one third in my playthrough of those original three. Um, and the first one suffers from the fact that the the combat, like the um the gunplay the shooting elements weren't fully developed to what the series would become that's true that's where it was re- that's where it was unrefined um mm-hmm. slightly unrefined or there was refinement to be done yeah in that department yeah visually arguably the first game looks the best that's um, so interesting yeah that, so but yeah that, i guess the the 69 connection is that like most of those games have sort of a little double entendre yes. with their titles. <laughs> so the much 69th that... 69th <laughs> element or... Uh, Going Commando, Up Your Arsenal, you know, Quest for Booty is one of them. Crack in Time. I don't know. That's not, that ma- that's not that bad. Into so, the Nexus isn't bad either. The newer ones, they just... They've gone soft. There's Full Frontal Assault, <laughs> which is like a, a tower defense spinoff. Um yeah it's it's a little inconsistent and some of those titles do get nixed in other territories um where these games are more explicitly targeted towards like young kids whereas mm. like those first three or four if, yeah if you include deadlocked uh those were all given t ratings in the u.s so yeah um that'd be fun to talk about on at some point but um just because of those games sort of 
use of um, a developed narrative and character structure um, in, in the 3D platforming video games, uh, which is kind of novel at the time. I mean, you, you got your Marios, your Sonics, but like those games have no narrative. It's, you can... <laughs> Really? I mean, I've never, I've never played Sonic, so I can't speak for Sonic. I mean, Sonic has always seemed a bit more like anime, so that it, it has like extensive dialogue and encounters with villains, and probably like a really convoluted plot. Yeah. Um, Mario obviously has has no um, traceable narrative, but I mean, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, those games appeal kind of purely lay in the game mechanics the platform right. mechanics and it's and it's obviously awesome and you know that it, well it's the basics of a narrative You're, princess peach is stolen and you <laughs> run through the levels and you jump on the goombas and you fight the, you save her it's there's a there's a there's obstacles you overcome them you win but ratchet and Clank, yeah was obviously what it what it did and how it took a yeah. a, a simple mechanic gameplay mechanic and improved it or really added everything and then added uh, an interesting narrative and characters actual characters with personality and emotion that's Mm -hmm. that was something Mm -hmm. we referenced um james arnold taylor briefly in the last uh (laughs) episode like in reference to david spade and like they have similar voices james arnold taylor is a very versatile voice actor you know he doubles ewan mcgregor in the clone wars uh animated series um, and then even like it, the sequel to this movie, we're going to be talking about Atlantis, uh, the lost empire. Does he do he, Milo? Uh, yeah, he does <laughs> yeah. Milo. I'm not surprised. Um, and I've never seen that, uh, direct video spinoff, actually the sequel to, to this. So me neither. Um, I, yeah, I seen little clips and it just looks like one of those, you know, made for TV, kind of Saturday morning. Well, that's kind of my overall mm-hmm. problem with this movie is that this movie looks like a made for TV movie. Yeah. Um, I'm probably underse- underselling it. It's and halfway I, there. Yeah. I want to, I always want to be careful when I say like the animation is bad or low quality or something, because obviously those guys are working their butts off. They're doing a great job. A lot of it is remarkably fluid and amazing, but there is to me, a noticeable lack of refinement um, in this one compared to everything that is sort of sandwiched in between, uh, including Emperor's New Groove and Tarzan and then what would come after with like Treasure Planet. Yeah, well, there's a very specific reason why this movie has a bit more of a comic booky sort of texture to it. It was Um, intentional then? Because it is texture. Texture is, you know, what I'm getting at, but. Um, Because the production designer was actually um, Mignola, Mike uh, Mignola, who created the Hellboy comics. Oh, neat. Yeah, um, famous for just his sort of... Um, they, they refer fingers. to it, Yeah, square, sort of sculpted drawing style. I mean, it's a cool look. Um, Everything's lines. It's all lines. The characters are an outline, and then they're filled in with one color. Like, there's very little shading or detail other than just very strong outlines yeah. and it's a very flat look it's a very flat looking film kind of like um, a tartakovsky cartoon uh, except his outlines like are usually a lot thicker blockier 
you know who Tart- I'm talking. Yes, about. that's the that's the Samurai Jack and Clone Wars animated series. Yeah, the 2D Clone Wars. 2D yeah, Gendy Tartakovsky. Yeah, well, yeah. Speaking of Clone Wars, like they just essentially lifted that 2D style to like a 3D iteration uh, when they went from the mini Clone Wars series to the the sort of full scale. And boy, did I have strong distaste for that. But it, I guess I got used to it. I mean, I, I haven't finished all of Clone Wars. I'm not like a, a rabid fan of Clone Wars, but I, I it grew on me overall, mm-hmm. the look anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these designs aren't quite as exaggerated that you see in Atlantis. I mean, some of these characters do kind of look like they'd be not too um, out of place, placed against pre-existing Disney characters. But um, yeah, some are, different- some are better than others. The worst defender by far is Commander Rourke. He has the most boring, limey, average face. Um, and his animations are really like the final confrontation. It looks, I, yeah. it's similar to the final confrontation with Clayton, but there's just this depth and richness and beauty to Tarzan and the way that that was done. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this one, it's, it's, it's just all very flat and, um, yeah, flat. I keep, I keep coming back to that word, but yeah. Yeah. I, I know, um, once they got into the computer animation rendering for the the 2D films, uh, starting with like the Rescuers Down Under, uh, moving into Atlanta, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast. Um, you know, th- you started seeing a lot more like shading that was clearly done in a computer. They used you know perfect gradients uh, yes. to you know create those. Almost and light, lighting effects. Yeah. Lighting is really like in Treasure Planet. You notice that right away. The way the characters are just bloom with the light that's reflecting off of them and off of light sources and stuff. And you, there's really none of that in Treasure in uh, Atlantis. Um, mm-hmm. Occasionally, like the very edge of their body will be shaded a slightly different shade depending on whether there's a light or a shadow. Um, but that's it. Otherwise, their colors are are completely flat. Yeah, and I almost think that it works quite well. Well, it's not bad, you know. They didn't do anything wrong. It's just Mm -hmm. not like that level of deep mastery that Disney is capable of. Well, when they're having to combine the 2D hand-drawn elements with so many of these 3D assets that they use in this film, um, I think it creates for a a bit smoother... um, combination um really i think it's i think it's a weird contrast how 2d they look compared to the 3d elements that they're interacting with compared to tarzan for instance or treasure planet Uh, it's a a lot more Mm um i don't know i i feel almost with treasure planet my memory i haven't watched that recently and i'm excited to review that um, sometime in the near future that came out the following year atlantis yeah. 2001 i would um, highly recommend comparing just like scenes kind of side by side and yeah. i'm comparing is an unfair thing to do like because again atlantis atlantis isn't correct isn't incorrect for looking the way it looks no but, um and i'll explain some of my issues with like just the overall presentation but with treasure yeah. planet like i i kind of just get the sense that the renders that they do on a lot of the 3d elements like the ships and 
you know, the environments and stuff where it, everything does look very kind of 3D, perfectly shaded. They, they want to get the volumes just right. Uh, it almost looks like early, just kind of early CGI that is kind of trying to look photoreal, but it clearly doesn't. So it's a little off. For the ships, uh, for the ships, you're, I think you're basically right about that. Yeah, but for the characters, not primitive. So much. Yeah. 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 The character animation in Treasure Planet is, I guess, leaps and bounds above uh, Atlantis if you're purely going for like that realism feel that Disney's known for. Right. Um, but Atlantis is just much more stylized. And I think a lot of that is intentional. Uh, but I, I wonder if part of it might have been to try to streamline. Um, just having so many characters, um, there's so much going on, you know, it, it might not have been quite as expensive just keeping these characters' designs just a little simpler, not having to um, use as many complex, um, you know, brush strokes, you know, and, and right. having to draw out these characters in each frame. You, you mentioned Rescuers Down Under. Is that legendary opening shot like a CG thing, a CG rendering where the camera is zooming across the outback and the like cliff D is that using that that tarzan yeah. software i thought that was invented later i don't know if you know what i'm talking about yeah but. that open it's the awesome shot like you're zooming oh. in on that the megalith rock and the, the airs rock kind of thing in the in the background and you're just that gave me crazy away. chills when i was a kid. <laughs> that's so like, cool i would feel embarrassed for like the chills that that like i as a kid i'm like all oh, it's it's just a rock like it's just it's just a rock getting we're getting closer we're just to moving, moving really fast we're just moving really fast there's no there's nothing like distinctive about the scenery other than this rock in the back but yeah and it was pounding so music dun, 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 dun. music yeah oh. uh, yeah I gotta watch that again. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I, as far as I know, there was nothing hand drawn in that sequence. That was all just kind of like Pixar flexing their muscles. I mean, I don't know <laughs> if it was Pixar artists who did that sequence, or they were certainly using the technology that was developed by Pixar. Uh, in the, for Pixar that flexing its muscles and saying Australia is the most badass place in the world. <laughs> exactly. Well, that was kind of around the heyday of yeah, like um, Australian fetishization and them trying to push tourism and stuff. Like Crocodile Dundee was like the biggest movie in like 1986. <laughs> I don't it, yeah, remember it finding that very good. Um, no, Irwin, of course, was huge. Um, well, he in the 90s, he yeah. was the ver you know, the 90s version of that in into the early 2000s. Um, but yeah, like, uh, unfortunately, Rescuers Down Under didn't quite get its due at the box office, and this film, Atlantis, didn't quite either. Although, I mean, it grossed over 80 million in 2001 in the US, which is pretty good, um, objectively speaking but for what they were going for, it was a disappointment. I, I really want to hit a lot of like your notes and points. So it stop me if mm -hmm. I'm like saying anything irrelevant or that. Oh, you, here, by the know. way, uh, just bring up a previous point. Um, <laughs> Wise and Trousdale, the directors of this film, uh, who had previously as a team directed um, Beauty and the Beast and Hunchback of Notre Dame. They were kind of like the John Clements, um, Ron Musker. I'm getting that right. 
no, Ron Clements, John Musker, sorry, Ron and John Musker and Clements um, team um, the, uh, of those two previous films. And this was their third film. They kind of wanted to depart from it, but they're both from California. Mm. Um, and then this was produced by Don Hahn, who's producer on um, The Lion King and Beating the Beast. Uh, he's from Illinois. Sorry to keep going on about the whole. Well, uh, I don't. No one cares about that. <laughs> I'm just no, exactly. Um, exactly. I, I don't. I mean, you do, which is fun, I guess, that like you care about where people come the from. Geography. Um, geography. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, no, I'm sorry. It's go just, for it. Yeah. Uh, running gag. Uh, sorry. Yeah. No, uh, I mean, it, continue it, with it, what uh, you were going to say. Adding technical, you know, grounded background to things. I mean, that's, that's good big brain stuff that I, you know, don't like, I should, I mean, I should know every, every name in the credits before doing these podcasts, but I don't do that kind of homework. No, it's um, not important. Uh, no, I just kind of spitball what I find interesting, um, I suppose, thematically and, and technically, which uh, and I'm I'm no ex. I'm not a big brain. If you're listening to this podcast, you know <laughs> that by now. Um, but no, so I have I had, I had nothing really else to say other than that I found it interesting that Disney attempted um, two um, epic adventure stories back to back about voyaging um when you know that's a, a departure from it's a departure from like the princess films or you know it's not really girly or childish if, if those are probably banal words to use but like these two you know uh, grand quest films that involve ships mm -hmm. um to find a, a thing um and they're right off each other's coattails and neither of them did well so i don't know um uh, maybe yeah or they they both underperformed work? yeah uh but certainly have their defenders um and deservedly yes. so uh, and i'm i'm a huge treasure planet defender and i know there are atlantis defenders and atlantis is not from this my viewing of it this time it was not as bad as i remember but i think it is a pretty lame no that's not what i yeah, think it's um it's an interesting curiosity it's a curiosity yeah and so take it away philip from there um yeah this movie you know they uh, wise and trousdale you know wanted to depart from the princess sort of fairy tale style and then they came up with an original story with their screenwriter um i gotta try to test oh, gosh what was his name um <laughs> i have it here um tab murphy uh was, is the screenwriter on this film and like these guys kind of had carte blanche do what they wanted to do uh beauty and the beast obviously very huge uh back of Notre Dame. Did beauty and the beast um kirk wise gary trousdale were director co you know co-directors on hunchback and beauty and the beast and then their screenwriter <sighs> tab murphy um and then don hahn um like the, these four guys were kind of the masterminds behind wanting to come up with their own take on the classic adventure serial. Mm. Uh, you know, they were inspired by things like Star Wars and Indiana Jones, you know, big properties from the 80s who, right. you know, were taking advantage of the modern film technology of that time and really updating these classic stories that because Disney hadn't done 
anything like that really disney didn't have a, a star wars or an indiana jones mm-hmm. um it had twenty thousand leagues under the sea but that was live action and made in the 50s and it's pretty boring if i recall so <laughs> and this is very this is very like twenty thousand leagues under the sea meets kind of indiana jones but anyway yeah take it away that's well yeah like this is very much in the disney or the uh indiana jones um wavelength and yeah twenty thousand leagues under the sea you can see the direct parallels with some of the steampunk elements you know the nautilus submarine and that looks a lot like the submarine in this the ulysses um, and, and of course, the ragtag group of adventurers, uh, straight from, you know, that kind of classic adventure, uh, kind of pulp novel, uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, you know, is yes. very influential on something like this. Um, oh, I have read that. It's, you know, Jules Verne was obviously a genius. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I've read The Time Machine. I haven't read okay. uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, though. That was H.G. Wells. Um, oh, but I'm... yeah, very <laughs> you know, the same genre, essentially. In fact, yeah. like, same more, guy. <laughs> you know, he's talking to um, Milo about like this journal and uh, I fancy myself, or I, I um, always enjoyed a good old Western. Uh, and of course, he wouldn't be talking about films. This movie set in 1914 right he's yeah, talking the... about novels exactly um yeah i think this movie gets off to a really bizarre start um sort of are like all the elements of setting up you know a character who's really ambitious but down on his luck and mistreated and then gets his chance um and meets with an eccentric professor um but to me it it's just it misses the mark in in a variety of interesting ways. Like the eccentric professor. Okay, sure. But he's pointlessly eccentric. Like not, no, nothing he's, none of the yoga stuff he's doing adds anything to like the plot or his character or anything. He's just doing it for the kids, for the kids to laugh at. That's kind of the impression I got from a lot of interesting choices they made with um uh, yeah mr whitmore uh, yeah mr whitmore milo meets him and he's yeah. doing yoga in the dark for some reason it's an eccentric billionaire i guess or you know and in, it, he would have to be from an industrial family or something he could have been a professor i suppose just you know kind of a renaissance man who's friends with the uh, elder professor thatch um, yeah, Milo, I guess, was primarily raised by his grandfather, who was an enthusiast for these sort of um, archaeological uh, oddities. <laughs> and at some point, the yeah. grandfather dies. And then Widmore, meanwhile, um, is is invested in Thatch's work, the journal, he, he, the journal to find the city of Atlantis. He has it. He takes it seriously. Uh, he gathers a massive team, a massive, he gets this massive industrial complex going to dedicated to the search for Atlantis. He builds in a technological marvel, this massive submarine. He's got mm-hmm. army m- folks, mercenaries behind him. He's been planning this and Milo's not included in, in on it. 
and until yeah. it's extremely it's an extremely unsatisfying setup for to me for milo's character where you see you're like okay here's this professor who's clearly the most passionate researcher about the topic of atlantis in the world and but he's mistreated and like you know no one believes him and so you kind of feel bad for him and then a woman is standing in his room for no reason and drives him to this mansion where a guy says uh uh where he's like all right I believe in you and you're going to go do it. And Milo's like, well, we need a crew and we need a ship. And the guy's like, yep, already done. It's already done. I did it. He just hands Milo everything. Milo <laughs> does nothing to earn any of it. Um, yeah. I don't and know. if he is the the foremost researcher and is Th- Thaddeus Thatch's grandson, why the heck has he not been involved in this monolithic process until this moment for him to just you know, have all his dreams come true. Like it obviously the the archetype of a character down on their luck suddenly having all their dreams come true was really appealing. But when it makes sense, um, it didn't mm-hmm. make much sense to me in this case. Um hey, it does somewhat serve to emphasize that theme of cynicism woven into the adventure, um the, the these sorts of adventures as they're undertaken by these wealthy industrialists who, you know, in some cases just care more about the wealth and the, I don't know, the, the legendary status, you know, that, that this cultivates and, and less about the academic preservation of these things. Um, you've, the hired, um, the hired help. I certainly yeah. have that attitude, but Widmore, Widmore didn't Widmore's intentions. were. You pure. wouldn't think so. Um, well, he expressed that he's doing it for <laughs> out of love for Thaddeus Thatch, Milo's grandfather. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe Whitmore himself uh, wanted to, he, he was sort of in the Milo role. Um, and I don't know, was Thatch involved in the search to Iceland to retrieve the Shepherd's Journal? Maybe more so, so that Milo's help was just kind of, it would have been unnecessary. It's so um, strange that Milo like figured out through the Viking shield that it was off the coast of Iceland and not Ireland. And, but meanwhile, yeah. a massive team of researchers was already working there and already using it and discovering the secrets, like and knew the location without mm-hmm. reaching them. It's a, it's a re it's a bit of a stretch for me. Yeah. I, I guess, um, but it's a cartoon. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, it's a cartoon for babies. No. That's fine because Milo is kind of yeah he's he's young he's inexperienced so who knows how much help he would have even been he kind of needs to prove himself um, so he's a master linguist he knows everything there is to know about Atlantis when we meet him um, yeah I mean he gets there um, he know he's there yeah, Shepherd's journal yeah well he's just missing the journal that's the only thing right um, he's yeah. And I, there's a lot of kind of just head scratcher moments. I think. Um, this oh movie... yes, oh, I can't <laughs> wait to get to those. <laughs> well, in you know, and there's this. This movie's only like an hour thirty five minutes long with credits, uh, and the screenplay that Tab Murphy initially produced was you know 155 pages long translated <sighs> to runtime. That's you know two hours, and I mean it's almost. Two and a half hours. Give us the Murphy cut. <laughs> um, I, see, I think that that's this movie's biggest problem is its runtime. I, would you agree? Like, there's so much potential here. Or um, that's more than two and a half hours. I mean, but yeah, like, uh, 
gosh, I, why, why do they feel the need to keep these? I think it's I just so hard for them to sort of in, um, undergo and sort of innovate in certain ways. You can tell they wanted to so badly. Was someone in the view, was someone, one of the executives at the time smoking their cigarette and saying, with Disney, we make cartoons for children, hour and a half, that's it. I mean, if that were the case, then I don't think they would have gone away with so much like obvious, you know, PG content in this film. You know, there's there's a lot of things that there is a lot of PG content. Yeah. That don't, you know, it doesn't obviously cater to young kids. Um, but it just moves so fast and so much of it I feel goes over your general audience's head. Oh, yeah. It doesn't have time to sink in. Frenetic dialogue just blitzing through and there's some really witty really clever moments that are a lot of fun but it just is happening at such a breakneck pace and then it slows down at weird moments too mm -hmm. um uh yeah i mean like like joshua sweet's moment where he you know he comes in and meets milo and mm -hmm. he's moving like a lightning bolt and he, he doesn't let milo get a word in and it's like are these these characters personalities like every single one of them is just this crazy yeah. frenetic thing and then, then there are characters that by the end, I'm like, I still don't know who you are. Like the old man, the old like Southern who had the tattoo Cookie. of the United States. Yeah. I didn't know his name. I didn't, all he was there was just to say one-liners. No one ever had like a meaningful interaction with him. So when he said goodbye to Milo at the end, it was like, <laughs> I don't even know mm -hmm. who you are. Yeah. And like, even that idea was sweet being um, just so, quick in his movements despite being like he's the he's the biggest character of the team um was thought of as kind of a fun contrast and like he this guy uh you know comes from the arapaho tribe and he's almost like a mystic uh you know trained medicine man but also a doctor who's had experience on the battlefield um so it Sharp was just seen as He's yeah. so much fun. Oh, and he's voiced by Phil Amar, right? No. Um, no, he's not. I've got oh. the... Uh, who was that? Because he, 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 sounds, he sounds just like Chris Jacobs. Uh, yeah. Phil Morris as Dr. Phil, Sweet. Oh, Phil Morris. Okay. Well, it's still a Phil. And Moliere, um, voiced by Corey Burton, he, you know, that's one of the few rotund characters in this film. Um, and I, I guess where round shapes are used, it's usually kept to fairly basic circles and ellipses. Yeah, Moliere's annoying. Um, that because I can't understand anything he says. Uh, I kind of like him. I don't. I I love the explosives guy, and Audrey's great. Well, actually, like I I like the whole crew. Like they yeah. really do all have really wonderful, lovable moments. Um, but with, yeah, like a two hour runtime, you just get even more and they could slow down, take their time. Milo's moment with Audrey when it, that's when the movie like first slowed down was when they're by their tents and, and talking about what they're, what they're going to do with their, or like their backgrounds and what they're going to do with their money. It's, it's really nice. Yeah. Milo has to really kind of pull his way to prove himself with the team. Uh, he has experience working in the boiler room of his university. So he can help fix the giant drill <laughs> and that impresses Audrey. So like you, you see an, an immediate sort of spark there. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, it's, it's some good camaraderie building as they're approaching Atlantis. And this was some of the stronger 
stuff i feel like in 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 the entire film i don't know what do you think uh yeah i i enjoyed a lot of that the road to atlantis um watching them all put their the team put their skills to the use uh to use kind of um and they have really they're just really wonderful vocal performances by the voice actors and um what uh how did they get all the equipment out of the the destroyed submarine that got attacked i yeah i I knew they they so they jettisoned like a separate pod right and there are yeah the the submarine i mean it's so like (laughs) i don't know how i feel about it so much now when i was younger i thought is it seemed just crazy to me how this steampunk as i would describe it now but it almost seemed like just space age technology that it was supposed to exist in the 19 teens. Like that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. This, this stuff feels more advanced than the stuff we got today. It, it does. <laughs> and it, it was funded always... privately. <laughs> well, maybe right, the military it's... got involved too, I guess. Well, it looks like there are so it looks like there are soldiers throughout. So I don't know if it's a yeah. private military or whatever, but um, it, yeah, I, I've never been a huge fan of the look of it, it's got this weird insect like look. Um, yeah. It's, it almost looks Atlantean on in its of itself. Um, yeah. And maybe that was intentional. I don't know. Um, the music is legendary. Um, and I don't know. They spend all the time. It's it's so fast paced building up to the the submarine and how amazing it is. And then they finally jettison it. And it's the big moment where they the submarine dives and the music swells. Also, how big of a ship are they on? The scale in the in the inside the ship where you you see the the submarine ready to be de- like the submarine is huge and then there's a scene where they're inside the ship which has the sum submarine inside of it and it's there's trucks driving around and it's like it's so massive i don't know if that yeah. is accurate to the scale of ships but good I, heavens <laughs> yeah you know the runtime would just have to be kind of arbitrarily extended on this film based on trying to maintain a cohesive sense of scale if this movie were done like Pacific Rim, you know, in live action. Because at least in 2D, you can cheat things a lot uh, and make things that are huge, lumbering, sort of have these quick uh, jolting motions uh, much more easily just because it's easier to sell that suspension of disbelief in this medium. Yeah. Which I kind of find frustrating, though, because if you don't have that sense of scale, the sense of mass that you see in like the opening shot of Star Wars, the overhead, you know, Star Destroyer, Mm -hmm. like it's not moving like a hot rod. But these submarines, they (laughs) skirt around like little flies. And it's just, you know, you lose any sense of, oh, this is a vessel that contains like human, multiple human beings. Yes. Uh, yeah, completely. Um, uh, but the first, the yeah, the first shot when it, the submarine is deployed, the music swells to its like most epic climax, and then it just sort of slowly pans over the submarine, sitting there motionless, and it's like, okay, there it is. There it is. Um, um, I don't know. I thought it was kind of underwhelming, and you know, Milo's inside, like looking at the water, and, and yeah, he's amazed. I, man, I didn't realize how like little emotional investment i had in the film until it got to the part where he and keto were standing up on this promontory and he was looking out over atlantis and he's crying like he has a tear in his eye and i'm like whoa am i supposed to be feeling that with him right now oh yeah because i suppose like his life goal was to get here and now he's seeing atlantis like yeah man 
wow yeah, that's a big yeah. deal but i just Jackie wasn't there doing that. yeah uh, um, this movie got me emotional on a couple of occasions but that wasn't one of them um the yeah the whole score you know is amazing james newton howard actually did a trifecta of disney scores in this era dinosaur uh atlantis and treasure planet and i think all three of them have similar i don't know i I should just download the scores on Spotify. I remember Dinosaur having epic music. I can't remember what it is, though. And Treasure Planet and Atlantis, I get their themes Mm -hmm. confused in my head all the time. Um, Yeah. Now, you know, sometimes movies just don't quite allow the composers to go this grand with their scores. And the idea is just to not, like, distract from the business that's you know being presented in you know in the picture and that's dumb (laughs) that's the dumbest filmmaking philosophy i think i've ever heard (laughs) i mean it's who doesn't want an epic's memorable score to be accompanying what's happening sometimes the music should be the main character in the scene it it just adds that much in my opinion yeah uh, you know it varies from film to film but um here they were like no holding back we want our epic yep. john williams you know anthemic score uh and it, it seemed yeah and it's un it's unbalanced with the like lack of grandeur in the film um and lack of grandeur in the sense that uh, to me yeah the film it looks unfinished and unrefined a, a lot of the the backgrounds even though they're supposed to be big and beautiful and epic look like digital rough sketches like hmm. very basic um almost like if you watch a digital artist like do a landscape and it's at like phase three of five like they haven't fully gone all the way well in like that opening prologue of atlantis um you know you have the flying um fish shaped rock vehicles uh zooming around and you see like the elements in the background um are are you talking about some of these things? Because those, yeah, they look a little like the, flat. yeah, the wide shots of the of the city and the architecture mm-hmm. and the um, yeah, yeah, the, na- the, the landscapes. You know. Hmm. Um. It's just a lot of stuff that they had to composite into these very brief sequences that were expensive to animate and to um sort of plan out because you're having to combine so many different styles of of animation together what is this that would be lettuce 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 it's a vegetable cookie the men need the four basic food groups i got you four basic food groups beans bacon whiskey and lard all right cowboy pack it up and move it out attention all hands to the launch bay final loading in If you're looking for the pony rides, they're back there. Excuse me, excuse me? You, you dropped your di- di- dynamite. Uh, <laughs> what else have you uh, got in there? Oh, eh, uh, kind of powder, nitroglycerin, notepads, fuses, wicks, glue, and paper clips, big ones. You know, just the uh, office supplies. So, it's, yeah, it's just, uh, this feels kind of like 
going back to the comic connection and you know the creative hellboy being the production designer on this like and and he actually went on to do like a comic mini series or something um about like combining batman with jack the ripper so it's a very noirish um oh he did got him by <laughs> gaslight yeah yeah oh interesting um so you know this uh to me feels like one of those dc comics um animated adaptations that you know often go straight to streaming or straight to video um like batman um was it under the red hood they did an adaptation of the killing joke they did the dark knight returns um those types of movies i feel share a lot of similarity aesthetically mm -hmm. to atlantis more so than any other disney animated film yeah i would i would agree it it feels like not a disney film it feels like it'd be more at home with a different studio label on yeah. it yeah well and i guess the one of those films that did get a theatrical release was uh batman mask of the phantasm which i believe was 2000 or um 1993 um so like it's not unprecedented for these films to get the theatrical rollout but for the most part it's like you kind of understand why these aren't quite to that level and and with atlantis i just it needed a little more plusing you know it did have a huge budget for a disney animated film it was like estimated at 120 million mm -hmm. um but still like you needed that extra world building that extra grandeur that extra weight to to really sell this i think to a wide audience yes it because they they're trying to tell a grand story and then the animation style doesn't quite live up to it if i were to if i were to sum, sum it up yeah yeah i uh it does contain an actual disney princess though um, it it's just <laughs> unfortunate you know we don't hear too much about her because of this movie's just lack of real cultural resonance everyone it's, it's another one of the well kind of like emperor's new group i mean everyone's seen this I, like all my friends have seen this movie and like a lot of them love her like you yeah. know they like her and obviously she has innate appeal mm -hmm. um i don't need to say any more <laughs> about that but <laughs> and like she i think she was the one unfortunate um omission from our disney princess episode we did way back um, yeah i forgot she was a princess <laughs> we i just thought she yeah. was maybe warrior girl or something i don't know or crystal I mean, that episode got a little long. I listened back to it fairly recently and it, it holds up. Um, but yeah, I don't think we mentioned her once, unfortunately. And we tried to touch on some of the lesser known princesses, even though on for me, I just ranked the main cast of princesses that get featured in the marketing. Yeah, well, what would so what would be there's a are they the B squad or something the like the B team? Yeah. Um, there's there's the Disney princesses and then there's the ones who got yeah. benched or didn't make the cut or yeah the the backbenchers the B tier the back, yep. uh, princesses Kida Alanwi um, maybe Nala you could throw in there oh no she's a lion <laughs> she <can't. laughs> um, um, oh there's but, more uh, I mean um, I guess not 
really any that I can think of that get significant screen time. Uh, you know, what's her name? Um, Alice in Kingdom Hearts is what portrayed as one of the princesses of heart. Or whatever. Yeah, that bothers me. That's always bothered me. I don't know why they picked her as a princess. I think they just wanted to use the Alice in world in the game. But like, yeah, yeah she they they pick her instead of I mean, I think there's there's like one obvious princess who's missing from the seven princess. Well, uh, oh, well, Ariel is in the game, but she's not one of the seven. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I guess yeah. I, I can't remember who all the princesses were at the time that the game came out. Maybe they did have everyone and then oh. they needed an extra if they weren't going to use Ariel, they needed somebody. And they're like, yeah, Alice, how about that? Yeah, Tinkerbell. I don't know. She... She's not a princess. <laughs> to me, um, she's royalty. No, yeah. I'm just, I'm looking at my my notes. I took a few notes. I They were all, they weren't very. I don't know. Yeah, this, detailed, but... this movie is so fun to just kind of nerd out to because there is so much backstory. And yeah, like this crazy two-hour documentary produced by the Disney company as like a DVD extra. I just watched on YouTube, you know, you got the full featured, you know, talking head interviews that, you know, all the, these um, cast and crew are <laughs> called in for, and, you know, they pour their heart out uh, on camera talking about this movie that unfortunately underperformed, but it's like, yeah, if you're going to have a documentary about the making of this movie, maybe you should try to have a movie that's of similar length. <laughs> yeah, wow. So what what's the main theme of the documentary then? Or like what do they what do they emphasize as far as the creative process of the film or the inspiration behind it? That there was just so much behind the scenes um development and world building and research that went into this film's conception so that you know the audience could feel the reality and the texture of Atlantis and not you know just feel as though it were a hollow representation of this fantastical world but rather a real lived in place well then don't undercut that completely by having that what on earth were they thinking scene where she speaks every language <laughs> i want to get it so dawson have you seen the videos on youtube of this guy who's like a tolkien expert and he's doing that explanation of like every race in is it tolkien. one of the wired videos it's it's like wired or Vanity Fair. Or... I did. I did watch him. Where it's like token expert answers all your questions or something. Yeah. Yeah. And just I, some I mean, like yeah. I. I love him. He just yeah. seems like some dude who's a professor somewhere. He's American. Mm -hmm. um, but like I learned so much listening to these videos, and like <laughs> I feel like that sort of mythology and world building. It, I, like I get the same kind of vibe from that as I do from a lot of the stuff that is like crypto um well uh, if you get into sort of the background of atlantis it is like part of that whole uh genre of like agent aliens and conspiracy mm -hmm. theories and things like that but like this this classic world building and myth making that that people find so fascinating and um definitely token 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 did it better than anyone has to this day or yeah. well he did it more and he wasn't he wasn't trying 
he wasn't world building, you know, he wasn't like trying, Oh, I'm trying to world build so I can, you know, he just, he just did it for it fun. Emanated like naturally. while he was in the trend. Yeah. It, the story came so much later than all of his world building. There wasn't a word for what he was doing at that time. Um, but he was a linguistics expert. That yes, ultimately he was, a, he was a philologist. Exactly. Mm. Um, who was fascinated with languages and histories and myths and everything and wanted to create an, an absolutely believable secondary world. Mm -hmm. um, and Milo Thatch, uh, speaking of geography and my obsession with it, he is a professor of cartography and linguistics. Cartography and linguistics, yes. Um, but yeah, like the, the whole, how do you explain the Atlanteans grasp of language um, and you can kind of get around like these people are what 8,500, 8,600 years old. That's 8,500 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Um, but that's because they have this intimate connection with this ethereal power. That is the, the crystals, the heart of Atlantis. So that just has this rejuvenating property, I guess. It, the collective, the, uh, a power that thrives on the collective emotions of the people of Atlantis, the history oh, of the people of Atlantis. I love it. It's like the force, but just it, raw and confined, you know, <laughs> refined. It, it's, I don't know about refined. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's like a, a crystal, so a mineral that, thrives off emotions and then develops a conscience of its own like it's almost like an alien entity that takes a crystalline form it really must be it really yeah if you if you're if you wanted to have a scientific explanation for it it would have to be alien otherwise if you do want a, a spiritual you know mystical mm -hmm. um divine you know you can you can do that too because mm -hmm. um but why they don't yeah yeah, why can't they read? Why can't they start their cars <laughs> after that, eight thousand years? I would. I know. Okay, so that the the documentary, they're all going. Oh my gosh, we just wanted to build this world that like people would like. It would feel real. It wouldn't just feel like some generic. Like they want it. Like they want. And I'm scratching my head the whole time because yeah, they can't start their cars. They can't read their own books. They can speak every language up to modern French but not read their own not that did i miss some key explanation in there about that or well here's my speculation on this um as you know and you're B the king of grasping so bs uh stands for baseless speculation baseless speculation. <laughs> um but um the you know the king he's blind did it ever explain why he's blind no i didn't know the doc um, well, he like he has no irises or pupils, oh. right? So I'm assuming I he's. I, I I didn't notice. I thought he was just weird. I guess. Yeah, uh, Leonard Nimoy's character. Wonderful um, voice, Leonard. Yeah, yeah, and he's dying. He's sickly. He's old, but he, I I mean, ultimately, I think blames himself for the downfall of Atlantean society uh, because he was pursuing some forbidden knowledge. He was he was using the power of the crystal for conquest. Mm -hmm. um, so I think he either blinded himself or, or for some reason, just obliterated any tendency for himself or his dying civilization to pursue further, greater knowledge. And I think that's what led to the 
downfall of written language in Atlantis. It was just, it became policy to forget how to read and to write because of where this sort of knowledge can lead. Well, these people were, <laughs> they were full adults when, and they got trapped or, well, they grew up to a certain age because Kita, you know, starts as mm -hmm. a, a wee child when the calamity occurs and then she grows up to be hot and then stays that way for 8,500 years. Yeah. Um, and I don't know about all the other adults in the kingdom. That was another scale issue that was mm -hmm. confusing me. How many people are there in this town? Because when the band of mercenaries are screwing with their king in his throne room and just having their way with him and kidnapping their princess, mm -hmm. there's like 12 of them standing around with, uh, to, not to be, yeah. the first word, the first phrase that came into my hand is what I'm hearing all these days with their dicks in their hands. Um, are they all immortal? Cause like, wouldn't they just like populate exponentially if they're all living for thousands of years or are only certain of them you know the the Numenorian or whatever is you know the the extra long lived race. That is funny, yeah. That Numenor is based on Atlantis, um, because uh, okay. it's an it was an island of uh, wise and powerful people who and were, who overreached and were bad. And were, are they called um, Numenorian? Yep. And well, and, uh, well, okay. So they they are Numenorians, and then Aragorn is of a specific race of the Numenorians called the Dunedain. Oh, the Dunedain. Yeah. And, yeah. and what's special about them, Dawson? Uh, the Dunedain, I mean, other, I, I can't tell you in detail Just what's special basic... about them other than they have long life. They have yes. long life. They're not immortal, but they have long life. Mm -hmm. They're not elves. And so maybe only like Kida and her father and, and maybe some royal Atlanteans have this ability to live forever or you know li just live those extra long lives i you know i don't know they all got the crystal necklaces they do as did one of my friends in kindergarten and i might have stolen it from them because i found it really cool um the the blue color the blue light that they used throughout this movie is mesmerizing it's mm -hmm. beautiful and like it sold very well it sold a lot of mcdonald's happy meals um wow. this film uh, I don't know if you remember that, but I remember yeah. Atlantis Happy Meals more than any Happy Meal ever. They're the, yeah. the chips and the summer. Anyway, no. The well, blue, here's my take. Because they all had the blue crystals, and then when Kita uh, yeah. walked away, um, it, the color, the light evaporated, and then that's it. Was this, I, I thought I was meant to assume? Oh no! Now they're now they're all going to die because they don't have the power <laughs> keeping them alive. They're all going to disintegrate. Like um, what's his name? You know. Um, Julian Glover in Indiana Jones the Last Crusade. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but no, uh, the Don Donovan was his character's name. Right? Um, General like, Veers. At General Veers, yeah, the actor Julian Glover. Um, <clears throat> but no, uh, the I'm assuming they are they kind of share sort of a collective consciousness, sort of a you know just a hive not a hive mind, but they're, they are more intimately interconnected as a people than, you know, those of us who don't have a central crystal deity, which we all worship. That's uh, not ever stated or explained. I, 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 it's believable. I would buy that. I would buy that, but they don't. My, yeah. My explanation for why they can't read is because basically the King is willing it so that these people don't pursue knowledge. They have forgotten. He's almost casting a spell over them. That's my only plausible explanation as to why after 8,000 years, 
you know, none of these characters, right. you know, and since none of that is explained, I mean, there's no, there's no reason for believing that whatsoever. I mean, it's there, there was so much information at some points and then not enough where it counted or where you needed it really. Um, mm-hmm. And just, and yeah. And then what seemed like just, you know, insane oversights, like the fact that none of the people stopped this band of um, uh, filthy intruders from, killing their king and kidnapping their princess i i mean because especially because i was like well maybe there's only like 15 citizens in the whole city and then cut to shots of hundreds if not thousands of them um who have all been living on and going no i they're forgetting how to read and write their own language that no i i mean i don't buy that It, it was almost like there was maybe supposed to be an they had an ancient language of their own like there was a language more ancient than their modern Atlant. Like maybe they all speak yeah, modern Atlantean. I'd buy that. Um, I, but and that doesn't. But they're all they're already yeah. ancient, and it, they would know. They would it just. But nice, it yeah. If like there were a scene of Milo being taken to, like the Atlantean elders who are the scholars of of that people, and like they can sort of give him a basic primer on you know where the archives are located where important relics are are housed you know kita only knows like the super secret places that are very deep underground they have to swim like outrageous lengths to get twenty thousand leagues my wife my wife next to me how are they breathing i'm like honey that's a real good question (laughs) um and how is uh unathletic Unambi- uh, unathletic uh, scholarly boy swimming so good and keeping his glasses on you made that note i found that was funny <laughs> have another seen... completely uh, sorry continue oh no i i was gonna say have you seen the good place no i have not there's a really scholarly character in that show who's like just ultra buff and you kind of wonder why and they explain it that this guy he's just he's such an egghead and he has such severe anxiety that his way of working through his anxiety is just doing constant push-ups. <laughs> and so like Milo Thatch, it, all he does is just swim laps in his off time to well, work Milo through Thatch, his... He has a great body. He looks like yeah. a, like a featherweight um, MMA fighter. Like mm-hmm. he's just lean and all taut muscle, but yeah. uh, there's another horrendous, horrendous out of character moment that, made me throw up in my mouth when master linguist cartographer knows languages speaks all languages and then the woman of this atlantean people that he's infatuated with tells him her freaking name and it's too complicated for him (laughs) i i literally barfed (laughs) it's like no that that's something that you that was uh that's something that an every man would do like an um, every, a, a, a silly person not milo thatch come on it's an interesting name for a disney princess kidagagash kidagagash Ki, it's spelled k i d a g a k a s h kidagagash pronto kosh <laughs> it's like the scene in solo when chewie tells so Han, you know, his name is Chewbacca. He's like, Chewbacca, we're going to have to find you a nickname. <laughs> it's just uh, That drove me insane, too. Thank you for reminding me of that. Uh, but <laughs> at least, yeah, Kida tells him, like, hey, you just call me Kida. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Great, great performance by Cree Summer. She is primarily known as a voice actor. Mm. Mm. Um, and she was great. Yeah. The freaking swimming scene. Come on. <laughs> I swim pretty girl. Uh, uh, I thought that was a good joke. Yeah. The, he start, that's like, what it, edgiest moment in a Disney film when he's like trying to talk science and then he's like, what are you doing? And she's like disrobing and then looks at him suggestively. And it's like, whoa. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Between two characters who are who ultimately become romantically involved. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, certain exchanges between like Frollo and Esmeralda are more like, Ugh. you know, well, yeah. Like Cause it's dark. Just, it's and, disturbing. You know, just, yeah. yeah. And I, I would say the dude Esmeralda never from... has a bikini on. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, you know, the infamous uh, Lion King, you know, <laughs> the doomy eyes, um, but no, oh, between two no, human no, characters. No, yeah. <laughs> But um, she's a lion, so like lion. you know, yeah, two human characters who two human characters a couple later on takes off her significant article of clothing and revealing a less significant one underneath. Like I, I don't think any other Disney movie has done that. It's it's pure <laughs> wish fulfillment. Um, uh, yeah, well, and I, it's the I mean a wonderful a wonderful trope is when person from civilized land goes to exotic land and then like you know falls in love with exotic person and um. You know, uh, you know, and uh, so, and Dawson Jillian was, was like, it's the opposite of Tarzan because Jane, yeah, you know, from, and then meets ripped, wonderful Tarzan, and you know, whatever. But. Yeah, and this is where I asked my million dollar question for the episode, which is, Dawson, have you seen the movie Stargate? You're gonna hate me if I don't, if I haven't, right? No, because no, I. I had not seen it. Until I thought it was a show. Just recently, it's a show. There are a lot. There are many episodes, many seasons of the TV series Stargate, including uh, one iteration of the series that's called Stargate Atlantis. Um, and I, I guess it's just a very similar genre and milieu, you know, because it deals with ancient aliens, and so it's like it's a lot of, you know, trope crossover. But it's the same freaking movie. Is it exactly the, okay? So let me let me go through it then. So there's a there's a young or a, a young brilliant scholar or something who's who studies ancient aliens and is studying these ancient runes or whatever, and he believes that there is uh, an ancient uh, something out there and a way to get to them, which leads to the discovery of the Stargate. And they go into the Stargate and they meet the alien race, and he falls in love with an alien woman, and then. The humans are trying yeah. to use their alien power. They're trying to use the unobtainium to um, do bad yeah. human things. And, and then, well, the main characters they encounter after they go through the Stargate aren't even aliens. There's a whole civilization of humans who have been like abducted by the aliens, and the aliens oh. use humans as like their vessel. It's like the scene in X Men Apocalypse when like the apocalypse character is choosing a new host um you know in ancient egypt um so th this that's the idea behind these ancient egyptian deities where like they you know they have these the special way to travel from world to world and um they have this giant um 
<laughs> what are they called? <laughs> the the pyramid shaped ships uh, that you know are the pyramids in our world are like a docking station for, but then they have these stargates that allow for immediate traversal. Oh, wow. um, but yeah, like there there's this um, civilization of humans. Um, none of them can speak English. It's a little more realistic in that regard. I mean, this is a live okay. action movie, so it has to be a bit more grounded. Uh, from 1994 um it's almost like two ab- hours long abducted like egyptians or something or most of the yeah people, like okay <laughs> yeah it's like on the other side of this door uh that is you know was originally constructed in ancient egypt um you know there's just a whole other sort of egyptian desert landscape on another world um, and then there's a whole bunch of humans there who were the slaves to these e- Egyptian gods. Um, and yeah, the, this group travels through in modern times and huh. Dr. Daniel Jackson played by James Spader, you know, is the expert who knows the language and like the people on the other wow. side, you know, most of them don't know how to read. Uh, reading has been for- forbidden. Um, he falls in love with the princess. Uh, <laughs> so I, you know, there's just, it's not identical. I mean, there's enough license there, but like um, just the character archetypes, you know, Spader and Kurt Russell plays the Colonel Jonathan O'Neill. And there's a, an alternative um, agenda at play. And of course, like the Egyptian, uh, God characters are um, definitely antagonists. Um, there aren't any like Atlantean antagonistic characters other than like you've got the giant Leviathan um, that's just like this automaton. <laughs> yeah. Um, They're a perfectly, you know, good race. Of course, one that has, you know, learned that has spent 8,500 years in where they are because they were once not a nice race. They were once, you know, ambitious and conquering and um, et cetera. But uh, that's, yeah, it sounds good. The only thing I know about Stargate is when King Harkinian says into the Stargate. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, I don't know. I'm probably being a little unfair. No, I, that's, no, that's very fair. I mean, I have a, there, I mean, the trope, the trope is spread. It can be spread in so many different ways. And I mean, at, at its bare minimum, like the never ending story is that trope. There's a kid from our known world who travels to the fantasy world and helps one of the people from the fantasy world save it and falls in love with the princess against, you know, the forces of darkness. It's like, I mean, it's really, it's really simple and, and it can be, it can be extrapolated in numerous ways. Mm-hmm. um and and some ways that are better than others because yeah anyway obviously. yeah there's there's a lot of dimensionality on the part of like the uh military characters in stargate um here in atlantis it's it's a little As opposed more to avatar con- like avatar there's not a whole lot of personality on the on the military side yeah um, on the sliding scale like avatars on the extreme like mustache twirling end and Stargate's more on the nuanced end and Atlantis is somewhere in between like Rourke almost seems like a redeemable character at points there is that abrupt turn after they uh, emerge from the underwater caverns where it's just like oh well that escalated quickly yeah he's not a murdering (laughs) psychopath he's really not that bad of a guy all the way up until 
uh, he finally, you know, betrays and then betrays what's her name, which just is tries awful. to straight up murder. Oh, Helga. I know. That's that's the first time he like straight up tries to murder anyone pretty much. I mean, even Milo Thatch, but when he's ready to abandon him because he doesn't like him. Um, and he's clearly, he was clearly never intending to be a murderous psychopath. Um, but yeah. he was just when push came to shove, he was okay with it. That's what's what I like about this one is that all the characters that we came to love, we find out that they're all traitors. And then Milo is able to make a persuasive speech that mm-hmm. redeems them and gets them back on our side. So that, yeah, that's Atlantis is far and away above Avatar in that regard. Yeah. Um, um I, uh, really kind of, love the back half of this movie i would say that, that's to, its yeah. strongest bits yeah and the whole montage too of the well the montage where it cuts away from all the characters and then it just shows like the volcano erupting and then those like colossus guardians coming oh. to rescue the city that was some ghibli-esque crap. yeah i was gonna say miyazaki for sure um yeah I'd, if only this whole movie were paced like an, a miyazaki movie yeah yeah um, and another way I put the like um, the animation the the what to me was kind of a uh, dissonance between the anime the the grandeur of the story and the animation style. I, I what I wrote in my notes was Emperor's New Groove style animation mixed into serious action adventure film doesn't blend that well because it mm-hmm. it's very emperor the animation is very Emperor's New Groove. Yeah, that that was kind of a blockier style too coming yeah um, but even but but more but prettier and emperor's new groove was prettier than atlantis weirdly mm-hmm. um yeah uh <laughs> rourke's death is great yeah like it is, isn't so it? free it's such nightmare fuel especially the sound design on when he's turned into that like crystal yeah. golem <laughs> It's kind of like the, the bear in Annihilation. Um, oh, yes. It's, it's right on that wavelength. It's just eerie. Kind of like the Nazgul a little bit. You know, it's, it's yeah. that type of just, yeah, um, blood-curdling <laughs> shriek. <laughs> yeah, they got me a little bit. When they show him, well, so he has the um, the the death of the God, the villain in um, Aladdin and the King of Thieves. The hand of Midas is mine. And yeah. then... He, he starts turning to gold. That's exactly what was happening to this guy. Mm-hmm. And he freezes into crystal. And yeah, he it got me. I was like, oh, he's done. And then, no, he's back. He's in, moving. Ah, oh, jump scare. Freaky. Oh. Yeah. And how did they get the, okay, what, but again, what, what equipment were they able to salvage from the big submarine that got destroyed? <laughs> they had so- a, a Zeppelin and airplanes. They had they, trucks and trucks and drills and a zeppelin and airplanes. They had all those escape pods or you know the the sub pods that came out of the main sub, and then there were three larger transport subs, but like only one of those survived. Yeah. Um, and then like only. <laughs> obviously like the face characters are the ones who are going to make it through and you know most of the red shirts got right. <laughs> annihilated but they had the as many red shirts as was convenient in the back half of the film like yes. some shots had lots of soldiers in them and then in other shots there were no soldiers to be seen 
Um, so they and went, the, yeah, from like, Atlantis had the same problem. The expedition began with around 200 crew. And then after the Leviathan attack, it was knocked down to like a couple dozen, you know, maybe two or three dozen. Um, and several trucks, the, the drill survived, I guess. Yeah, it was the one larger transport sub piloted by Helga along with like the mini sub pod that was piloted by Vinny and uh, Moliere that, that survived. And I guess there was enough capacity to be able to carry several trucks, at least three, I would say. And then the drill and, and then two of the trucks make it all the way to Atlantis. Like they barely make it across that the narrow bridge, like the bridge of Casa Doom, yeah. The sequence with the explosive fireflies, right. um, and th- those fireflies almost seem reminiscent of like the Indiana Jones gags with like the just the ex- <laughs> ridiculous amounts ridiculous of bugs, <laughs> yeah, creatures or bugs. Um, yeah, uh, it's a uh, kind of a fun twist on that. It's snakes and it's snakes and. Rage of the Lost Ark, and then it's bugs, which is the, by far the worst, and then it's rats in the Last Crusade. Temple of Doom is such a bonkers movie, and I Temple- love it. <laughs> it's uh, I think it's my favorite. I <laughs> you mentioned like inconsistency with um, oh gosh, Milo's propensity for language, and I thought that this was maybe a inconsistency where Joshua Sweet talks about how he hates fish. But then later he's shown eating this shrimp thing with many eyes. Oh my <laughs> gosh, you are right. I know. Yes, I remember the line where he says, oh, um, my family's up that way. Beautiful country. Do you like fish? I don't like fish. I hate fish. And then he eats these sucks the brains out of the fish. <laughs> I guess, yeah, maybe wow. he doesn't like fish because the bones, he kind of says. Uh, but he's like, I hate the taste, hate the smell. But then again, it's the, Atlantean. Yep. What's that? Yeah, hate the, yeah, he even goes for hate the taste, hate the smell. And then he, um, but I guess try everything once. <laughs> yeah, as they say. And that, but he's, he's like, yeah, make sure to eat the head. That's where all the nutrients are. It should have been a different character saying that to Joshua. Like, make sure to eat the head. That's where all the nutrients <laughs> Moliere. Yeah, he would have loved, he, I could imagine, you know, li- loves gross things. So he would love the shrimp. Yeah, um, he, and then Joshua recoils in horror. <laughs> um, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, Vinny character. I, he he's kind of he seems like he's almost trying too hard to be funny. But which one? Yeah. The the Italian explosives do. Oh, I like uh, him. Uh, yeah. I liked his deadpan de- like delivery of his lines. Like, yeah. Um, it works. Um, Jim Varney is always great. His character is a little over the top and underdeveloped, but um, <laughs> the four basic food groups is pretty great. Uh, beans, yeah. bacon, whiskey, and, and what bacon, was it? whiskey, whiskey, and lard. Lard. <laughs> yeah, good. And I like that the smoker woman is a non-character, but she's wonderful. <laughs> she's like the waitress in Emperor's New Groove. Um, yeah, I, was that the same it, voice? I don't um, think so. 
Mudge, you know, honey, you know, just smoking her and taking her pictures. Cut. I love when it cuts away to her taking a picture in like the middle of an epic moment. Yeah. I love at the end how they're all dressed up talking to Charles. You see them all. They okay. Actually, one of my favorite things about this movie, which a lot of the whole like you know the adventures, they go to a place and then they learn a lesson and leave the place. They usually, you know, the real treasure was like what they learned along the way, yeah. and they always have to like leave the real treasure behind, like in Goonies. They lose the ship. They get like enough gems to save, you know, the property, but that's it. They don't, not enough to strike it rich or, or in treasure planet. They lose the whole treasure planet. Just John Silver's got a pocket full of treasure. And in this one, they look over at the getaway vehicle and they're just loading it up with treasure. <laughs> and it's awesome. That made me so happy. Yeah. Um, so you uh, see them all dressed very nicely at the end. Yeah. Just something inherently satisfying when the good guys walk away with a wad of cash. <laughs> yes. Because like, that's what they were there for. But then they did the right thing. So maybe this will be me someday. <laughs> maybe it's a what? Oh, maybe this will be me someday. Yeah. I'll find my buried treasure. Oh, we all <laughs> do. That's the hero's journey, right? You yeah. go to the, you go into the cave and you come out with the treasure. Yeah, a lot of things. Yeah, they subvert that they don't. You know, it's it's about the the lesson learned, mm-hmm. um, but not always. Yeah. Um, what else? The oh, the smoking in this movie is kind of surprising because yeah. Disney has a fairly adamant policy. Yeah, policy nowadays not to depict smoking, and right. I don't know if there are really exceptions made to that even in like the marvel films or even star wars like you see in the original star wars in the cantina there's characters smoking on hookahs and stuff and death stick guy you know (laughs) crown jewel of the jokes and attack in the prequels george lucas epic independent director you know doing whatever the heck he wants you never see anyone use a death stick though oh you don't i don't think so oh you're right you're right so it's like, yeah. um, I would love in, to see that policy sort of loosened just for the sake of authenticity. In the ant bully, I think it's the ant bully. There's the, there's um, a guy, the, the, the exterminator who loves killing ants. Um, the theatrical release, I'm pretty sure he was smoking a stogie the whole time. And then they <laughs> edited it out for the DVD release. What? Yeah. I remember, oh. I remember reading about like a distinct like stu- worldwide or national nationwide studio effort to take all smoking depictions out of cartoons. And I mean, uh, Grow up. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's a noble cause, but like at the same time, there's just so much stuff that does explicitly show smoking. That's like you watch, turn on any random piece of content on disney plus from pre you know 2005 and there's smoking all over the place you're not fooling anybody unless you go back and remove the smoking from all of this crap which if you do that then you know shame on you you deserve to be boycotted yep for ruining thank you (laughs) history you know for for messing with your you know for for censoring the past shall we say or whatever revisionist you know historical revisionism yeah um um, just you know make all the make all the warnings you want before the movie starts about whatever you're ashamed of now and then let people see what you did i mean it's it is a a viable character sort of affect to utilize from time to time i it is well cuz like the that care i mean 
imagine if she wasn't smoking. I mean, her character would still be that character, but the cigarette, it just, oh yeah, that's yeah, the smoker lady, you know, <laughs> like that's such a trope, like, and a mm-hmm. wonderful one that, you it, know, it even was though, accurate to the time. Yeah. Especially, well, especially, yeah, it was what everyone should have been. They should have been passing cigars. Milo should have just been chain smoking, you know, along with the rest of the crew. Just, yeah, is the thing they did. When Audrey says, Hey, Milo, come over here, sit next to me, she should have just immediately handed him a cigarette and lit it for him. Like, I mean, Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. (laughs) I smoke red apple. Um, yeah, a little Tarantino sort of flavor to some of these character interactions. I don't know. Yeah, um, they were like again, really charming characters that two two hours, you know, two and a half would have been. Because then you could have. It's funny how much there was a sense that I wanted to like ship Milo with different women, even though like there's there's no relationship. Well, there's no um crush drama i guess like none of that is elaborated on but even just the mm. the plot related or or benign interactions they have it's like well he has you know obviously there's steamy lady in the beginning and it's like oh you know and she even says huh it's a wonder this guy's still single and it's like oh is he gonna have to is he gonna have to win her heart and then he has the heart to heart with audrey and it's like oh they're really cute and like bond and then he meets you know atlantean yeah. princess and it's like well shoot um embarrassment of riches and two hours of a movie you know you could have had audrey like maybe you know fall for him or maybe he has to choose or even like blonde lady like you know milo it's me or her and not that you need any of that obviously but it's just fun Uh to see how like how that can be there even when you're not even intending it to that's visual language that's what Um, that'll do for you the animator of audrey was the artists that we've mentioned yes. previously we um, love she's my favorite animator because she's the only one whose name i know but Anne marie bardwell uh, yeah she animated esmeralda and angel in um, rock and rule um probably some others are you familiar with the term contrapasto in art mm-hmm. um i uh, think i'm saying it right contrapasto so it's um drawing or sculpting the human figure um unbalanced where they're leaning their weight on like one leg so like roman the statue of david you know he's standing contrapasto he's not he's not rigid he's not standing straight up and down in a balanced strong pose you know it's Mm -hmm. and that's what that um contrapasto form is inherently sensual or it's like more it's more sensual than um, not being contrapasto. So that's where you yeah. get the, you know, the hip, uh, the hip to shoulder ratio okay. is wide on one side and shrunk on the other side. Um, so like Megara is always contrapasto. And I mean, like all animated characters are, you know, they use that extensively, but yeah. I noticed Anne-Marie Bardwell, there's one moment with Audrey where she, she just like leans all her weight to, she just makes her butt look really big for some okay. reason. I don't know. Jillian and I noticed it together. We're like, why did she do that? Like she was being, I, well, there's nothing sexy going on, but she did something to make herself just look sexy. It was like, well, okay. Well, yeah. Um, uh, Venus de Milo statue, which doesn't, you know, is famous for oh, not having a head. Yeah. Yeah. The Venus and the, the Venus painting, of course, too. Yeah. Um, that statue is featured in full glory in hercules if you recall 
Uh, it is. <laughs> it's there's like a scene where Hercules and Meg are hanging out, and he skips a rock across this reflecting pond. There's a and statue at the head <laughs> off of it, right? <laughs> yeah, he breaks the statue and turns into the Venus de Milo. Uh, and like, there's a like the you know the breasts like are have detail on them so it's like the one instance where you actually have realistically drawn um female breasts in a uh, wow and i never noticed because i'm just i was so accustomed even as a child to seeing i I knew what a greek statue was Mm -hmm. and i knew that there it wasn't dirty i guess no that's fascinating though that's so funny that what yeah they i think there are some nipples in like um fantasia Fantasia. yeah Yeah. but that's way back oh i remember those (laughs) your your joke about yzma's breasts made it into the episode oh good i I put a little tag at the end (laughs) um i need i need to do a disney a disney breast uh oh gosh top five (laughs) yzma's number one (laughs) Yeah, purely um, satirical. Um, followed yeah. by Roz from Monsters, Inc., probably. Randy Haycock was the supervising animator on Kida because I was kind of wondering, like, Kida sort of resembles, like, Angel from, from Rock and Roll, who's got really light hair. I don't yeah. know if there's a... But it makes sense that Anne-Marie Bar- Bardwell did Audrey because just from the movement and what you're saying about... What's that? called in art again contrapasto contrapasto um and then uh yeah randy haycock supervised prince naveen clayton eeyore so he's not really known for the female characters so much um and then john pomeroy who's kind of a legendary uh character supervisor um he was like one of the three people to break away with don bluth and um form yeah the blue the bluth sullivan can't remember sullivan's first name but like they um he did a lot of work on the don bluth films um and then went back to disney and was a character animator slash supervisor for john smith um Mm -hmm. captain flint and his crew following the uh, atlantis uh, pomeroy yeah he was a supervisor on milo um so uh just a lot of a lot of impressive talent that just put their heart and soul into this movie so it's always tough because like the the crew roster for just the animation department alone on this film is like 300 people (laughs) yeah Marlon West, he's a big innovator in visual effects. Um, you know, he's he did a lot of even like, like the promotional build up to Frozen 2. He can be seen doing interviews and stuff. So to this day, like he's a big player at the studio uh, and he got a big start just building out so much of the crazy visual effects that you see in this film. Um, it, it was a big departure for the studio. Um, but not maybe um, something that paid off as well as they had initially hoped. But I, I think just in terms of sheer innovation alone, I'm sure there were a lot of things they learned as a company, as, uh, as artists on this film that would pave the way to a lot of things 
in the future. Yeah. Was was Treasure Planet kind of like the nail in the coffin on Disney 2D or well because it felt what treasure planet feels like to me and i i don't know how if this is true if enough of the same people were behind it but like that atlantis was this great you know experiment in trying a bunch of new techniques and stuff that was then i would say probably closer to perfected in treasure planet but then it failed even harder than atlantis did so they were like well this isn't working clearly we just need to go full you know so we just yeah. need to change everything. The, Send out the bolt. <laughs> the yeah, animation in the classic fashion was mostly put aside after Treasure Planet. You had Home on the Range, and then several years later, um, Home on the Range, well, was the Princess and the Frog. Um, that was after two thousand. Well, yeah, Princess and the Frog came out after a couple CG films had already come out right yes yeah um and then they were sort of doing simultaneous um sort of 3d films and 2d in the very early years of the 2000s um you know you had treasure planet you also had lilo and stitch that same year i forget Uh, about that one (laughs) yeah brother bear was that 2003 yeah <laughs> and but that was pretty much it. Then he had yeah, Home on the Range, um, and and then and Princess no. and the Frog, and then there, there was Winnie the Pooh, which you know they keep making those. That's like a separate thing, but it is part of the official list. Hmm. Um, like Emperor's New Groove was number forty. Um, I always remember seeing, you know, at um, Tangled they said in the opening credits you know walt disney animation studios the 50th film 50th film yeah um so there's an official canon and like the tigger movie isn't part of that because that was disney toon studios that developed that film is that in asia uh no it's it's primarily located in california Uh, but there are satellite studios throughout the world now where disney houses its animators uh, there were French animators who worked on Atlantis uh, mm. and other films of this era. Is that why there's a lot of French influence in the film? Or, or how? Maybe. I guess, okay, so I thought the explosives guy was French. If he was Italian, I must have missed something in the exposition. Uh, the accent. Vinny, yeah. I couldn't tell the accent, you know, apart. <laughs> the actor is um, Don Novello. So, yeah, it's... Uh, I can't remember his full names, like Vin- Vincente or something. Um, yeah, he's, I think trying supposed to be an Italian. Well, and they talk about in the documentary, he, you know, talks with his hands and things like that. So they were uh, drawing from that influence. Um, yeah, the the way that this type of movie tends to go is very hit and miss. I mean, even in live action, because Disney had some big swings with movies like John Carter and The Lone Ranger. I've still not um, seen John Carter. Tomorrowland. Yeah, these like big budget um, action adventure films that just, you know, because they lacked, I think, strong character resonance and a real clear focus, they just they didn't take off like a Spielberg movie would of this no. ilk. 
I, I, I mean, I don't blame them for trying because like they uh, talk about hit and miss. I mean, National Treasure and Pirates of the Caribbean, just perfect action adventure films that Disney was, you know, technically, you know, over uh, was the umbrella. I don't know. It's like Bruckheimer films was Pirates of the Caribbean, but like owned by, Di- I don't know how involved Disney was is what I mean to say, like versus just the, the, the mm-hmm. subcontractors. Uh, if that's the correct term for it Um, yeah yeah i mean um it's there's a lot of just shuffling around that happens in live action especially um but yeah it's it's hard to pull off this level of uh ambition disney did the the live action three musketeers right with uh Kiefer sutherland and oliver platt and charlie sheen yeah that was another one that was another disney which I love. It's it's not it's not amazing, but I I do still love it a lot. <laughs> yeah, and that movie underperformed. Um, of course it so did. Yeah, it it really is kind of like walking a tightrope with with these. Kid in King Arthur's adventures. Court had so much potential, but was basically garbage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I think it's just sometimes when you have these massive budgets you have to meet a certain threshold and it's just a lot of pressure um i personally love like tron legacy it's one of my favorite live action disney adventure films from the past couple decades it's a strong film yeah but even that sort of struggled to turn a profit so Uh, they're really lucking out shall we say with um like the marvel films uh, banking on the established brands and then the the really strong kind of emotional cachet that they found with their animated films Um, moana frozen of course zootopia um wreck it ralph like these movies are performing very well Mm -hmm. because they just tell very sincere stories and i think people really find a lot of deeper meaning within them yeah they're not they're not exactly genre films so they're kind of they're still fairy tales really i mean they're Mm -hmm. modern extrapolations of a fairy tale but they kind of they follow that formula more than they do like a an action adventure uh what what's the what was yeah. Star Wars inspired partially by that sci-fi? You know the serial, um, serial, yeah, serialized, um, yeah, Buck Rogers, Flash Buck Gordon, Rogers, Flash Gordon, um, yeah, that, and yeah. I, I don't know, there, there were more um, adventure, you know, historical adventure type serials as well, um, and westerns, and just all the different sort of pulp uh, disposable <laughs> entertainment that people flocked to in the early parts of the 20th century yeah um, the the, the hero's journey and the sincere characters should still be really strong in those adventure stories um which is where i think personally treasure planet succeeds masterfully is in its characters and its sincerity and um and the storytelling but maybe there's still there's still just that I don't know. Are people do like are people embarrassed of pirates? Like they'll go see Wreck It Ralph because it's so off the wall. But oh, like pirates and ships and an adventure. Like yeah, that's that's a little too. That's kids. I don't know. So it, yeah, I mean, there's a bit of an animation ghetto 
uh, in the U.S. especially, where it is seen as inherently kid-centric. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't how to fully transcend that. Pixar kind of has just as a brand itself. Well, um, it's funny. That's what literally popped into my head was where like I thought Brave was going to be that, you know, an adventure, like an action adventure film with in, in medieval fantasy times mm-hmm. um, with weapons and, you know, combat and excitement and thrills. But it was it was bears and moms, um, which is fine. But, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's still not that. Yeah, Disney definitely had just that sensibility of being mainly for kids so they weren't really going to break free of that uh, without really you know finding something that just could smash that that boundary Um, and it wasn't Atlantis and the only things that had broken that boundary were the musicals Um, yeah I, I, I guess if you want to talk about a movie that's of a genre that is more adult centric from Walt Disney animation studios uh, that really broke through. It's hard to say. I mean, maybe Mulan because it's more of a war action. Yeah. Yeah. That's Um, a good point. It's like, it's both princess film and action adventure film. It kind of, it was a more successful hybrid. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think Zootopia, well, it's still talking animals. You know, Lion King had a lot of serious subject matter, but it's, you know, talking animals is the music. Right. That's why I, I, I won't even really class. It's hard to classify Robin Hood as like, you know, an action adventure because mm-hmm. talking animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if it were a live action, if it were, if those are real people in Robin Hood, I don't think it would have performed nearly as well. And I don't even know if that performed well, the original Robin Hood. I mean, that was kind of a, one of the slower periods for Disney, mm-hmm. if I recall. Um, yeah, I, I don't think Disney animation, I love their movies, but they still definitely cater to kids um, pretty definitively. Um, I maybe say with something like Wreck-It Ralph, you are targeting more directly at adults who feel nostalgic towards video games. Mm-hmm. Um, so that might be the best example of, of something that's because obviously all kids films should and can appeal to adults and honest and sometimes they can be more true and um you know than than adult content necessarily a, a great a disney i thought you know made a great choice in, in picking up narnia as a property because mm-hmm. i think i thought it fit really well in kind of their storytelling telling ethos where there's talking animals and it's fairy tale and it's action and it's adventure but it's all very pg and for kids but adults can still appreciate it and they kind of let that go um you know um so but a lot of the you know i don't know they can they can tell they can tell that kind of a story i think but you know i don't so this well this this movie reina the the new disney animated film i was gonna mention it looks like it might be going back in that action adventure raya raya yeah however they um it's a girl on a quest it looks like (laughs) yeah i even saw a pull quote from someone who worked on the film i was one of the co-directors i believe who (laughs) did say something that was quite stark i thought it was i i was 
pleasantly surprised where he said, you know, we probably have a cut of this film that would get an R rating. <laughs> so, Whoa. yeah. We have a cut of this film, though, again, all right. Release the R rated cut. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, Hopefully, that means like you're doing a, a Dave Lynch impression. I love it. <laughs> oh, release the R cut. We have a cut of this film that's R rated, but Disney won't let us release it. Because Disney's a bunch of hack frauds who don't have a dream or a vision. They don't know the thing. They're doing it wrong. Oh, he should direct It's it. not real art. Uh, yeah, no, he should absolutely should. Um, so here's looking forward to uh, Raya, Raya. Um, and of course, I'm also looking forward to talking some Treasure Planet, talking some TP with yeah. you at some point. Um, maybe throw in some Titan AE. Um, a few things. Yeah. So, unfortunately, these things didn't hit stronger at the box office, but that's just kind of how it goes. I was looking at the numbers for Solo, just to compare to these. Because, uh, I mean, this movie, um, you know, cost $120 million, made $84 million domestically, which is disappointing. Ooh. Like, with, with these movies, you want the domestic gross to at least be what the budget was. Um, and, and the worldwide gross ended up being 186 million um, especially in the early 2000s when the global box office wasn't as huge as it is now um, so I mean it technically had a 66 million dollar profit shown here but with the marketing and you know distribution costs um, and it just Disney uh, it trades on cultural impact and Atlantis just didn't quite, other than those crystal Happy Meal toys that you were talking about. Yeah. Um, there's really not much presence in the parks at all. The only reason Dinosaur still has presence in the parks, mm -hmm. I feel, I, well, it, it, had, it has that massive ride. If you meet the budget, you're in the park. <laughs> if you don't, you're out. <laughs> and that, I think that was just kind of happenstance. They had the ride track. Well, it's, it's Animal Kingdom, so you, know, you would want like a dinosaur-themed ride. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, that movie was more profitable than any of the 2D films from that era. But these are all kind of of a piece that, you know, Dinosaur, Treasure Planet, uh, Atlantis, even Emperor's New Groove to an extent. This is just a weird, weird time for Disney animation. Um, and then eventually Michael Eisner would, you know, be kicked out of the company. And there's so much restructuring that happened. Um, because the film studios were struggling and yeah, a lot of things would change in just the next several years. Um, but it's fun to explore. Um, Atlantis, uh, I don't know, not much more to say. That's where, you know, not much more Yeah, We can absolutely wrap this up. That's oh, I was going to mention Solo that like, oh, the, right. Um, just briefly, that movie cost around $275 million. <laughs> Because the massive like reshoots and isn't everything. that like more than Infinity War? <laughs> uh, yeah, probably. Just because that movie, I doubt had nearly the difficulties, and they it there was like a you know back to back production with 
Endgame. So they were filming it like, you know, Lord of the Rings, where, yeah. you know, there's two things simultaneously, basically. Um, and then um, it grossed domestically 214 million, which is pretty good. This long, Ron Howard's biggest film, uh, but 393 million worldwide. So less than double the budget and and usually with marketing and distribution you know you're looking at um almost double the film's production budget in some cases especially for something massive like solo so you know it it was definitely a disappointment you know movies will often eventually make money in the long run just because of all the opportunities for distribution down the road Um, but you know, it's just disappointing when you're looking for something that's going to resonate with audiences and yeah, yeah, the, the money is almost a secondary concern when you're talking about like Disney where they want your choirs and in high school to be singing the big songs from their most recent movies hit soundtrack you know, at, at each of the, yeah. yeah. Well, I almost wonder if, if resonance, well, it, it might not be resonance in like a, a deep and true sense, but resonance in a shallow sense. I mean, maybe it's a bit cynical, but like the movies that do better are the ones that appeal to the least common denominator or the widest demographic or are the most safe, the most tame. They're that, not, you know. Yeah, that can happen. I, I don't see that with like, the big four Disney Renaissance films. Really. No, not the re- not the Renaissance films. Maybe maybe the modern films more. I mean, um, I mean, I obviously um, you know, <laughs> ride or die for Frozen. Right, and, and I and I would and I love Tangled. I think Tangled is amazing, but I would call it very safe. I would call it uh, like as safe a movie as you can possibly make. Um, in a sense, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think that necessarily applies so much to Disney. It's a, a little bit because these are all ultimately corporate endeavors. And so they have a certain sheen to them, of course. Uh, but it's not quite like, you know, say trolls. Um, no, it's, it's where that really is trying to, you know, uh, you know, appeal to the, the top 40 aesthetic, you know, pop. One chart. Shrek came out. Children only wanted to watch Shrek. Oh, Shrek was at this time too. Yep. Shrek has I some think, deeper themes. Yes, but- I think sh- I, th- I would say if anything killed Atlantis and Treasure Planet, it was Shrek. Because it had the music, the popular music. It was funky. It was edgy. It was action-packed. It was a quest. It was hilarious. It was romantic. It was goofy and cutting edge in every possible way. Shrek is like the pinnacle 3d animated film of the century of i mean of the of the development of animation probably i mean i think people are starting to see it that way um and disney and disney's never gone full shrek but they've really tapped into a lot of shrek yeah well there are lots of cheap knocks knockoffs of shrek that are just trash uh and you know you just use your eyeballs to really discern where the substance is amongst these huge you know, blockbuster products, really, that these these big studios are. I was trying to think of an example when you said out. that. And the first thing that came to mind was um, Happily Never After. Did you see that trash? 
And that wasn't even, I don't know if that was a major studio, but yeah, exactly. It's, but it's they, kind of, but they were, um, if it was a non-major studio, they were able to pitch this movie like it was because of the Shrek aesthetic, mm-hmm. um, which it, you know, completely filled out. The only thing I liked about that movie was the main character looked like Tal P from Dynasty Warriors 5. Sure. Video game. I, yeah. And the, you can tell the animation. I'm, I'm not sure that was it was a b-tier studio i think and yeah you know god bless these people who you know work in animation it's a lot of you know pressure and and it sucks and if you if you if you made it to the point that you're making movies that means you didn't give up when millions of others did yeah so So. you know you definitely deserve lots of credit for just getting you know to to work on these things and if you're building, we yeah. never say you shouldn't have made it. No, like, I, I mean, yeah. I, I guess there are some things where it's probably like you just shouldn't have done that. You should have done something else. But like, <laughs> obviously, credit for for trying and for doing work instead of we're sitting here just talking about it. You know, we're not we're not making anything. So good. It's, on you. Yeah, it's kind of a miracle. A lot of the stuff gets made. But even talk about like the major studios, Trolls World Tour felt pretty vapid for me. Um, so I'm, I'm sure it was. <laughs> I, I, that's probably the, the perfect example of safe, vapid, perfect for kids, and then maybe adults chuckle. I, I don't know. But yeah, and that's fine. Yeah. There's like... Treasure Treasure Planet. I, I, I'm keep going to this, but like the and I'm not I'm not trying to like hype this movie up more than it more than it deserves. But as far as this story about like, you know, for it, it has an audience, like all you have to do is go on YouTube and, and search for the main song and it has like several million views and then read the comments like this movie hit a chord, just maybe not with as wide of an audience as um, this movie, this movie hit a very mm-hmm. deep chord for a smaller audience, whereas m- most Disney movies that are successful probably hit a fairly shallow chord for a wide amount of people. Maybe that's yeah. overgeneralizing. I think it'd be safe to say. And again, like no matter how much I wreck it, Ralph, even like, you know, I'm not as wild about Frozen as I am about Tangled or Wreck-It Ralph, but I would call both of those movies very safe. Hmm. Well, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I, uh, it's hard to sometimes parse these massive blockbuster endeavors because, of course, there's going to be a lot of talent and artistry that comes through and shines through. like you can you can find so many details to sort of sift through um, i would much prefer watching something like this atlantis the lost empire than say you know dc's aquaman which i just you know i would have to maybe try give that another chance but i just got nothing from that film <laughs> it's just pure noise when i saw it in theaters i got wet when I watched that film. <laughs> you saw in 4DX. Water. Her, uh, Snow. <laughs> you went to Hoth. What did you find? Snow. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. Water. Uh, uh, that's a, such an obscure reference. No one would understand. But of course, yeah. something like that. There's so many details. And- you know what I liked about Aquaman? Tamir Morrison and uh, uh, Aquaman. They had, they had like one really fun father-son scene. Mm-hmm. I, I think I liked that. And his shirt. He had a really cool linen shirt when he was walking around the island with yeah. Miranova. Anyway. Um, one moment that did, I, I guess I did feel emotional when the king dies in Atlantis. And then um, when Kida is returned from the heart of, the, of Atlantis, like she has that bracelet that is, um, you know, foreshadowed in the 
opening sequence and and that got me emotional that's as, interesting because yeah. i th- it, they showed that bracelets very briefly and all i remember all i remember wondering was like oh is that bracelet important and then i was kind of confused by it but i might not have been paying close enough attention when it happened because it happened so fast the bracelet yeah. stuff it just symbolized um, the benevolent sort of spirit of the uh the heart of atlantis and how it's not just this sort of indifferent cosmic force but rather there is like a a genuine soul and um care that that this whatever it is this entity feels for the the atlanteans um so i thought that was was touching and and i guess yeah yeah Oh, sorry. No, not to interrupt. Keep, keep going. No, no. Um, I guess, yeah, it symbolizes how the, the mother's spirit is still with Kida and everything. That, was, there a, was there a deleted scene? Um, so when Kida go, she's drawn to the crystal. She floats up into the crystal. She becomes the blue spirit, descends down to the water. There's the scene from all the previews where her eyes open and it's spooky. And then she walks dramatically towards the character's and it's like she's going to do something. It's like she's on a mission at that point. That was the whole spirit I was getting. It was like, oh, wow. She like took on the spirit and now she's walking really epically. She's going to, there's something she's trying to accomplish. And the characters are, and then it cuts to her being locked in a box to be carted I, away. I was I like, think, what? <laughs> yeah. It's like, why isn't the spirit trying to defend itself? I think part of that might just be that Atlantis is dying. So it's time for this spirit to move on. Uh, you know, move is on that to- what she was going to do? She was just going to walk away? That's what her... <laughs> I yeah, maybe. So. And so... I feel like there was a scene in between there. I also feel like maybe yeah. they were going to use the mom more because when the ro- when the rocks opened up and I saw the blue spirit, I went, oh, it's her mom. And I was like, no, it's not her mom. Kita just went up there. It's obviously not her mom. It'd be um, interesting to see a spinoff of like j robert oppenheimer or nikola tesla studying this power that you know this crystal power of atlantis and trying to um you know develop that into actual like practical technology and maybe even see a future alternate earth that's powered by atlantean technology that, that might be kind of fun that would be too clever though that's what <laughs> that's exactly what disney wouldn't do uh like here, here, our new animated film is a sequel to Atlantis, starring J. Robert Oppenheimer, the uh, creator of the Manhattan Project. Yeah. Crickets. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that would be legendary. I I completely you know, agree. A future with like flying cars, and it would actually be like Back to the Future to <laughs> Milo could the, or, you know, Marty McFly, a descendant of Milo Thatch. <laughs> going yeah. on adventure. No. Meet um, the Robinsons. Uh it, the lore of Meet the Robinsons is their technology is all powered by the Atlantean crystal. Exactly. Um, Atlant Atlantis should be such good fodder, but I've really not seen any good Atlantis uh film or material or book. I know that there's an Indiana Jones video game, right? Or is it a book where he something like that. Yeah. Something like that. It's perfect yeah. for Indiana Jones, um, mm-hmm. but it's probably not. Yeah, just give us straight up atlantis remake but it's indiana jones <laughs> that could be what indiana jones the new game is about by who's making the new one isn't it bioware or something or, no bioware's doing star wars there's um, a big indiana jones video game in the yeah works. there was a teaser trailer that was just released there it's a okay. new big indiana jones game it's cool well they're working on a movie too so right yeah maybe indiana jones with harrison relevant. ford yeah i you know yeah. 
If Biden I feel like, can be president, he can be Indiana Jones. Let's go. Like my big pitch for Indiana Jones is like have his granddaughter be like, uh, you know, named after him or something or have a descendant of Indiana Jones be the new Indiana Jones. So you can keep it all in the same canon. You don't like recast. That. Yeah, you don't actually you don't recast Indiana Jones. Are they Unless, scrapping? Are they scrapping Crystal Skull or is it? Are no, they like, hey, it's there. It's kind of no. no reason to do that. I mean, you could have uh, an aged up Shia LaBeouf kind of playing a, a mentor character to like the next, maybe his child or something. Is the Shia game. LaBeouf is not his kid, right? In the in the movie, Shia LaBeouf is the son of uh, Indiana Jones. Yep. In oh mm-hmm. wow, that's sorry, that shows you. And and Marion Ravenwood. Mm-hmm. And Marion Ravenwood. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, so now sh- his granddaughter, then Shia LaBeouf's daughter, could be the yeah. I mean, it has it. It, it would have to take place in the seventies or for that grandson, to be possible. but yeah. I mean, be I like granddaughter, idea. especially you know the name Indiana for. I mean, this is a perfect opportunity to you know have a do a really awesome um, female protagonist. Not that there yeah. aren't many amazing female protagonists, but like she could it be so much more than the fact that she's female, like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do something with Atlantis or maybe even like the terracotta you know, army from because those were like discovered in the 80s and not until fairly recently, which is weird. Um, but, you know, maybe incorporate that kind of lore um, oh, yeah. it, it being set and have it set in like the 80s or something. Oh, the eight, oh no, Philip, you're. I'm Just so dumb to have said the... 70s. It, of course, they're going to set it in the 80s. Of course. Well, oh. yeah, because uh, the King or Crystal Skulls is in the 50s. So, yeah, I guess 20 years after that would be 70s or Indiana 80s. Jones, 1984. <laughs> That's the title. Yeah. Not to like further, you know, indulge in 80s nostalgia or anything, just because that it's easier to tell. Uh, an Indiana Jones story if you're not dealing with like current day technology. <laughs> yes, crap. no, stay away from Monerton. And um, and then it wouldn't make any sense for him to be alive. It would make sense for him to be alive and old in, in the 80s still. Um, and and you've still got the Russians to worry about, you know. And uh, of course, well, Indiana Jones is one of the few things that makes sense to do the 80s nostalgia thing with because Indiana Jones is one of the products of the 80s. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's one of the reasons the 80s is nostalgic. Mm-hmm. It's Anyway. We've yeah. gone on. Well, yeah. So uh, I I enjoy kind of delving into these deep substance. Well, substantive, but like, you know, we we'll do this maybe. From well, time the girls to time. wouldn't have ne- been nearly interested in going on like we have about these things and all these as, tangents as and stuff. Yeah. Um. So it's fun to kind of get that out. But um. Yeah, we've kind of explored and laid the groundwork for some of this era of storytelling. Uh, so apologies if it's gone long, but thanks for sticking with us if you have. Um, and you probably you you would know what to cut. In, you know, no, I, I, I uh, this has all been great. And yeah, we uh, you know, this was a very specific time in animation history and the technology kind of at a reaching a turning point of CGI being able to tell more realistic, uh, compelling and um um immersive stories yeah um you know meet the robinsons you mentioned was another film from this era um chicken ugliest film ever made (laughs) was one 
you know, I uh, was there another CGI movie we're missing? They had Dinosaur, they had Chicken Little, and Meet the Robinsons. Bolt. And it was like Bolt, and, and the Bolt was the first movie released after John Laster and Ed Catmull came in from Pixar uh, to supervise yeah, was... Disney Animation. Um, yeah. Um, other so. 3D CGI. I can't think of I any think, others. Yeah. Ones you mentioned. So. Uh, other than we'll just, the Mars Needs Moms and Christmas Carol, right? Like those were a different, a whole different. Yeah, thing. yeah. Robert Zemeckis's company that did a lot of motion capture, um, image movers. Um, but yeah, that's that's a little separate. So yeah, Atlantis. It was the forty-first animated feature from Walt Disney Animation, and it was quite a bit of a departure. But then the following year, you would have a very kind of similar take on the genre with um, Treasure Planet. Um, and we'll talk about that at some point. But um, yeah, it's uh, an interesting time. And, and a lot of these things have kind of faded a little bit. But of course, there are still plenty of fans who are very nostalgic for these things, understandably so. Right. Um, yeah, there's not much else to talk about. Uh, Kirk Wise wouldn't do much more for Disney. Um, he has only directed one feature film since Atlantis, which was 2020's Bobbleheads. Speaking of... The title scares me. <laughs> yeah, not great. Um, and then Gary Trousdale um, has done a lot of stuff for DreamWorks. Um, in fact, he directed, if you remember, like the first madagascar penguin spin-off was like that that um christmas special which was oh, hilarious i don't know i don't know if i've seen the christmas special i oh. love the penguins movie jillian yeah. just watched it today with her nanny kids too yeah <laughs> i just remember seeing a penguin short in their mid-2000s it was i think 2005 um i can't remember what movie it accompanied but like I just remember laughing really hard at it because that yeah. they brought in that um, old lady character from the original Madagascar. And like, I just remember this Christmas special with the penguins being way funnier than the actual Madagascar film. You're not a fan of those, are you? No, not, I, I like the second one because the second one actually has some jokes that make me laugh. Uh -huh. I can't, I don't know if I can tell the two apart, to be honest. Um Oh, um, oh, what was the what was the Madagascar knockoff movie? Was that Disney? Yeah, that was like a third party. It was called The Wild with Keith Sutherland as a lion character. Um, but that as was... a child, I was embarrassed watching previews for that movie. Just like, I know what you're doing. This is just weak Madagascar. What do you? Why? Like, you're not fooling anybody. It was distributed by Disney, but it wasn't developed in house. Um, it was, and then, yeah, there was like that Bruce Willis raccoon movie over the head. Over the that, head? That was, that, was a, that was a mainline DreamWorks movie. Mainline DreamWorks. Okay. And that one was funny, if I recall. Yeah, it was pretty oh. good. Um, so, yeah. Anyway. Well, well we, thanks, yeah, Dawson. Yeah, you, you clearly had uh, some you know, did time, have time, to, to time to chat tonight, which I, I am very grateful for. This was very fun. It was very fun. Yeah, thanks for making um, me watch Atlantis because I was not planning on ever doing it, but I'm really yeah. glad I revisited it. Um, so. there's, there's a lot of beauty there. Um, mm -hmm. I This is kind of the style of podcast I enjoy listening to where it's a sort of long form and you never know what direction it's going to take. 
and it's almost like going to film school in some cases. Yeah. But um, yeah, okay. the uh, <laughs> the movie Atlantis, um, we hopefully talked a lot more about contextual stuff that covers a lot more ground than just this one film. And uh, next time we'll keep it a little lighter. Um, but for now, uh, we, any, we, we nerded out over, yeah. uh, you know, a movie called Atlantis. That's right up our alley. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm not, I, I like the princesses and all that. I love them. I, I do. Mm-hmm. But, you know. Yeah. What's with the symbol? The A. Is there a word for that symbol? Because a lot of times people misuse Greek uh, characters. <laughs> um I don't but, know, but it was yeah. on the shoulders of the soldiers in the in the ship. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that? They're patches, and, and it looks yeah. a lot like the Assassin's Creed logo. Yeah, I don't um, think it's the Greek character Delta because that has Delta. that's just like a triangle, right? Maybe, maybe it's a, a technically a Delta symbol. Well, I don't know. I guess it it would make sense if Atlantis. The Atlantean language should basically be a Greek. I mean, it's a Greek myth. It's a Plato. Greek... Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, just a style choice. Kind of cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, f- yeah, no. You find Thodcast on various podcast platforms and uh, at Thodcast on Twitter and Instagram. This is Thodcast.com. You find me, Philip Elke, at, on Twitter and Instagram as well. Um, yeah, thank you, Dawson, so much. Uh, man, uh, we'll be back on the Songcast at some point. Thank you for uh, listening and have a magical day. Have a wonderful week. Warm hugs, everyone. Mm-hmm.